This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with religious scholar Ursula King. She is Professor Emerita of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Bristol. I spoke with her on April 25, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of the BBC in Bristol, England. This interview is included in our show about Teilhard de Chardin. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Hello. Hello, Dr. King. It's so good to speak with you. Well, I've um, really loved uh, delving into Teilhard and to you these last couple of days, and I'm just, I, I got here a little bit late. I got stuck in bad traffic, so I'm just pulling out my books. But, right, um, right, right. Take your time, take your time. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me before we start? Uh, I, you know, I had asked um, Nancy Rosenbaum what we were going to discuss, but I saw that in the initial invitation she had put um, that you wanted to ask me about the life, Mm -hmm. ideas, and legacy of Teilhard de Chardin. So it depends very much where you want to put the main emphasis. I don't mind whichever topics come up. That's fine by me, I think. Yeah. I have done various interviews on Teja, and you know I have got to covered quite a variety of topics in my book. So I'm happy to, to follow your lead if you want to, you know, if you have a sort of yes. priority of... Yes, no, that, that's how I'd like to do it. I mean, we, that's what we will explore. Um, but, uh, and... Um, and it will be. We'll explore it conversationally. Um, and I'm. But I'm also. I'm interested. Obviously, I'm speaking with you, and so I'm. You know, this is. This is um, very much coming through your um, experience of Teilhard and your these decades you've spent steeped in his legacy. So I'm. You know, I'm. I'm not just interested in. Um, we're not going to pretend like this is all objective, but I, I also want your take on this as a 21st century person. And I. I think the way. Um, I mean, I have. Um, I have a lot of questions uh, to okay. go from, but I think the way we'll f- we're focusing this is, um, you know, we won't do an exhaustive uh, breakdown of his thought and theology, but uh, it, it we'll focus it in terms of um, getting a handle on that, because assuming that a lot of listeners, you know, may never have heard of him or may have heard the name, but don't really know, right. don't have full connotations. <clears throat> but then, you know, what what in it, what in his thought? Um, Speaks to modern people, and and I, th- I think there's 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 still a lot more there than we can do in an hour, but um, that that's the way we'll we'll um, okay. break it down. Okay. So I'm getting some messages from behind the glass. I'm hearing an echo. Is that what you're going to say? Okay, all right. I'm going to be quiet while the engineers take care of things. I have no echo. I have no echo at this end. Not mm-hmm. what comes through to me. Okay. A very. <clears throat> no, the volume is just fine. I hear well. My voice. I don't know how long it will last for an hour. I t- I sip a little bit of water or yeah, tea don't in between. Worry. We'll, okay. But uh, it's the the level of sound is just perfect for me. I'm I don't okay. know how mm-hmm. it comes through to you. Mm-hmm. Here it is fine. You know what, um, Chris? I noticed when I turned my volume down. Also, the echo. Or, or is it okay for you? Because I'm not. I'm not hearing it now that I've turned my volume down. Okay. S- All right. Let's just. Good. Okay. 
let, let's let's do this then. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Great. We're ready. Um, I um. I, I'd like to actually start just knowing a little bit more about you. Um, the, you know the the, uh, the 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 background you brought to this, not not just academically. And I, I wonder, was there a um, was there a spiritual background uh, to your childhood, to the beginning of your life? Um, not in a not in a very specific way. I was, you know, I I was born in Cologne, but we were. I was born just before the beginning of the Second World War, and then mm-hmm. we were evacuated, and then I grew up in a very uh, rural area in the mountains, and I was brought up, really, as a Catholic in this little village where we were evacuated. And it is really, you know, that's my beginning, and that's also influenced my schooling. And then I had this very deep uh, desire later on to study theology, which was very resisted, very resisted. I knew <laughs> nothing about Teya at that time. I wanted to study philosophy and literature. I read where, a, where did where did that deep desire come from? That your your interest. I don't know. I always read a lot. Uh, I was up to the age of fifteen with uh, in a school of uh, you know many of my teachers were nuns, but uh, maybe it came from their influence. I don't know. But then mm-hmm. from the age of uh, 15 and a half, I was in Cologne in a big uh, secular school, really, largely with boys. We were only four girls in the class. The rest were boys, and we had a very secular curriculum. Mm-hmm. We had uh, some in Germany always have religious education as part of the curriculum, and we had a Dominican uh, father who gave us once a week for an hour's religious lessons. I mean, religious lessons meaning education about religion rather than into religious practice. So it was more knowledge-oriented, and I got interested in reading about Thomas Aquinas. and We had very good, I had a very good philosophy teacher. I read a lot of philosophy. I worked on Newman. I did all sorts of things. And then I don't know. Through this, I got suddenly the idea I would really like to study these questions at university. That's how it started. And and how did you discover Teilhard? Well, that's quite a wonderful story because I was a very keen student and I also got a big national grant because I was a very poor student. I got a grant to study and I was encouraged to um, study at least one semester, if not a year, abroad. And I chose to study in Paris. And I went to the Catholic the Sorbonne, to do philosophy and theology. And I met many people who are internationally quite famous, whether Gabriel Marcel or Ricoeur or... Mm. Anyway, um, my uh, theological... Uh, less, uh, lectures came from Jesuit professors, and one of the professors, who was actually a Belgian, he had known Teilhard de Chardin, and he had tried to publish some of his uh, essays before Teilhard died, and he, oh. Teilhard wasn't allowed to get things published. Then yeah. he, in 1962, when the Vatican issued a document saying that Teilhard de Chardin's ideas should not be taught in any Catholic seminary. He this was after his books had been published, after no, his death. No, it was after his death, but only two or three of his books were out. Okay. It was at okay. the beginning, but he was very well known in France. He was mm-hmm. very well known. Okay. And so this uh, very um, 
enterprising, audacious professor who also had a visiting professorship in California, he used to go to California every year for one semester, he decided he would give a series of public lectures in Paris on Teilhard de Chardin. And that's how I discovered him. And it was a wonderful experience. And he lent me uh, the very, almost the very last essay that Teilhard wrote, which was then only in a cyclostyled form, it had not been published. It was not published till the late 1970s. But that essay is called The Heart of Matter. And okay. that is really the spiritual autobiography of Teilhard, written in 1950. And that contains, in a nutshell, his inner development and how he really discovered this wonderful uh, you know, uh, the development of the world, the evolution of the cosmos and the way this really is intertwined with human development and spiritual development. And it's an absolutely wonderful text which has the motto, at the heart of the world, uh, at the heart of matter, sorry, at the heart of matter, it's about matter, at yeah. the heart of matter, a world heart, the heart of of a God. So he sees really everything uh, centered or uh, I should say diffused, penetrated, enlivened, energized by the divine. That's why yeah. he speaks about the divine milieu. I mean, this is really a very, very rich notion for him. And it is this, I mean, he writes somewhere uh, throughout all of creation, that's to say throughout all of the universe, without exception, Everything, everything, assail, the divine assails us through everything. You see, everything right, is somehow right. a connection to the divine if we but discover it or make it or whatever. So I, I think this is also a passage from Heart of the Matter, um, uh, which, which is one of the passages you isolated for uh, when you selected some of his writings. And, right. And, and this also gets at the fact that... Um, that matter, <laughs> and initially in the beginning of, beginning of his life, you know, matter in its most solid form in terms of how we perceive it, rocks, <laughs> yes, were, were captivated him, and he grew up, of course, in a in a mountainous region of France where there were extinct volcanoes, and uh, so here. Um, it's in the Auvergne, here's, in the Auvergne. Yeah, here, right. So here's some, here's some, I'm just going to read some of these lines that really uh, struck me. Right. Um, At the very beginning of my conscious life and my efforts to attain and grasp, grasp the solidity to which my innate demand for plenitude impelled me, I tried above all to capture the essence of matter by looking for it in its most closely defined and concentrated and heaviest forms. Then it was that my newly born attraction to the world of rocks began to produce the beginning of what was to be a permanent broadening of the foundations of my interior life. I'm just going to read another passage later on. He says, Later, when I was studying geology, it might well have appeared that all I was doing was seriously and successfully to consider the chances of a career in science. In reality, however, during the whole of my life, there was but one thing which would irresistibly bring me back to the study of the great eruptive masses and continental shelves. That was an insatiable desire to maintain contact with a sort of universal root or matrix of beings. And he says the truth is that he's never been able to feel at home, even at the peak of his spiritual trajectory, unless immersed in an ocean of matter. Right. Right. <laughs> That's so, it's just so um, vivid and unusual. 
It we just, don't hear people talk about rocks that way and climb to those spiritual peaks at the same time. Yeah, he is, the, this is really, he has got a palpably concrete sense of, you know, what matter is, the heart matter, the matter that is often seen in terms of brute forces, but that is from inwardly energized, centered, gives us, eventually leads us to life. I mean, he collected first stones and rocks. Then Mm -hmm. he moved on to collecting crystals. And, you know, he was always looking for something concrete. And Metals, right? He was very fascinated with them. Yes, metals, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to really see all this, how this, you know, how the whole world, the globe is actually something very material, you know, whether you look at the rocks, the rivers, uh, everything is there, the molten lava that comes out of a volcano. I mean, he grew up in a volcanic volcanic area in in the Uvern. So he had this sense and his father was an amateur scientist who encouraged all his children to do fossil collections. That's how it really started. He was was brought up in a very devout Catholic traditional family. He could have become just a traditional priest without all this, but because his father encouraged them to do this, he had this great curiosity and he was always drawn to the outside. I mean, I keep thinking, I've been to the places where he's was born and where he wrote in the Auvergne and the very house he lived in. And, you know, you see this, it's still a very rural area. It's outside Clermont-Ferrand, outside the provincial city that is the capital of the Auvergne. And it is... Uh, you know, I think of my own children and grandchildren, children who are so full of curiosity, who want to climb the trees, jump into the river, right, swim, right, right. go up the mountain. You know, and they did this. And mm-hmm. they were, I mean, he was in a family. He was the fourth child of 11 children. There was a very large family unit there. And then in the holidays, they would all meet up with their cousins. So that would be really like a crowd, almost like a little village, if you like. And they would go on picnics and go for walks. And he always had these kind of stirring questions and ideas. And he was drawn to something. It was quite mysterious. I mean, he had right, this right. vocation for for working, you know, for working matter, for discovering things. So he he was drawn to geology. He became mm-hmm. a geologist. He had doubts about it when he was first a young Jesuit, whether really you could do that. But he did it, and he right. he he really devoted his life to it and became an internationally known scientist. But he always had this very deep spiritual vision of things. Right. And so he became a priest um, at a very young age, which would not have been all that unusual in, in that kind of devout Catholic family. And well, then he was, sorry, me, sorry, mm-hmm. he was only ordained in 1911 when he was 30. That's not so young anymore. But he what, joined what the Jesuits at oh, the age of Oh, he joined the Jesuits at 18, right. Yeah, okay. but I mean, then all you right. have over 10 I years see. training. Right. right, right, right. Okay. But he did He did join the order. Um, yes, young. At the Yes, as a young adult. And then it seems to me that um, the, 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 the other cathartic experience that then continued to shape uh, him was, so he became a Jesuit and he became a scientist. And then in 1914, he went into the trenches of World War I right. where he worked as a stretcher bearer. Mm-hmm. And um, I see this phrase appearing in his writing and in, in, in your writing about him that he discovered in that experience, um, alongside his sense of the milieu of nature, of, of, of matter, he discovered this whole new human milieu. Mm. Um, mm. 
And I want you to talk to me about how you think that then shaped his vision, um, including how he then went back into his science and his and his theology. Right. Well, first of all, I think it's before, just shortly before here, two or three years before he uh, went to war, he discovered evolution when he was a student towards the end of studying theology, which he studied in England. I mean, he studied it on an island. Uh, No, he studied it in Hastings in South uh, South of England. And he had by then already been teaching in a Jesuit college in Cairo. So he had already been um, subject to influences which were uh, outside Europe. You know, he had the sense of the world being really very large. But he, um, when he went to war, he he didn't want, I mean, he had the right and he should have really been an officer and he didn't want to be an officer. He wanted to be with the ordinary man. He wanted to be just an ordinary soldier. So because he was a priest, he couldn't fight and be a combatant. So he was, he became a stretcher bearer. And he was particularly keen, and I don't know how far this really involved a personal choice. He was with a Tunisian regiment, you see, and this regiment was consisted largely of Muslims and had no no pastoral care. There was no Muslim uh, chaplain or anything. Yeah, this is very, very important because he he describes very vividly how he brings these uh, these dying men, these wounded men from the front back to the back of the uh, fighting uh, lines to be, uh, you know, attended to, or the very often he assisted dying men, and he describes this, how he sees, you know, how he sees the immense suffering of people. But the the extraordinary thing is he was so involved with all these uh, very important battles in the trenches of, uh, you know, along the French-German border, he never had a single wound himself, so mm. that the Muslim soldiers, they admired him so much, they felt something. They said he was a Sidi Marabou, which is a North African expression, a Sufi expression for a man uh. who is tied to God. Someone has described it being tied to God like a camel is to the post, you know, and mm, God's mm, blessing mm. is on him and protects him. So never, ever anything happened to him ever. So, you know, it's quite remarkable when you think of these hundreds of thousands of people who were shot and right, died right. in the trenches in the bloody war. And he was never even wounded. So right. this is extraordinary. The second extraordinary thing is he was involved, you know, with the with the army moving forwards with different battles. And in all this kind of uh, turmoil, he starts writing his essays. You think, right, is this right. actually humanly possible? You right. know, and he felt he had seen something. He was really very interested, you know, in seers, in mystics. He also read the mystics during the war and before. And, you know, he, he saw something and he, he had a kind of affinity and empathy for people who saw something very, very deep, something spiritual in reality. So he starts writing essays because he felt he might die any moment. This is in 1914 at the beginning of the war. He might die any moment, so he might as well write his intellectual testament and describe what he has seen, his inward vision. And the inward vision, the first 
very first essay ever wrote was called Cosmic Life. Right, I have that in front of me. Yeah. So, so this these essays were collected in a book called, uh, which is the title, Writings in Time of War. But only after his after his death. Only okay. after his death, okay. he was never allowed, except for one essay, he was never allowed to publish any of those essays. Right. right. So these essays, they're really, if you like, the foundation. And all his later ideas, they already have the seats in those essays. I think, you know, I'd like to read just from the, the, from the introduction in that first essay, Cosmic Life. Um, yeah. What, what follows springs from an exuberance of life and mm. a yearning to live. And again, it's so important to remember he is carrying mortally wounded bodies yeah, um, all yeah. day. He's, he's as close to death as he can be. Um, yeah. So what follows springs from an exuberance of life and a yearning to live. It is written to express an impassioned vision of the earth and in an attempt to find a solution for the doubts that beset my action. Because I love the universe, its energies, its secrets, and its hopes. And because at the same time I am dedicated to God, the only origin, the only issue, and the only term. Yes. You know, uh... Those, those, those. Uh, sorry, that last text right. is not very well translated. Issue in term, it's the final, the the goal, the ultimate summit, if okay. you like. You know, in, okay. in English, it does. It sounds much weaker than in the French. Interesting. And there's also a sentence, just a couple sentences later, that that feels uh, like this is how he starts pulling all of this together, right? His vision mm. as a paleontologist, mm. as a spiritual man, as somebody who's in the midst of war. My starting point is the fundamental initial fact that each one of us is perforce linked by all the material, organic, and psychic strands of his being to all that surrounds him. And, you know, what strikes me about that is it, it sounds like something that someone would write in the 21st century, but not in 1914. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, very perceptive observation. You see, this is, I often find this, I find people write something today and I think, my goodness, I wrote this in Tia in the 20s and 30s. Right. You know? And this right. is where he was also, why he was such a lonely man, why he had a vision that really was so comprehensive and so alive and so forward going, you know, right, that right. that it was very unusual in his time. You know, I mean very, very unusual. And this is he he tries to he tries to grasp what he's actually feeling and think. You know, he says sometimes I would love to be a musician, maybe to create a symphony or something to express the whole music of the universe. I would rather be a Wagner than a Darwin. You know, it's a sort of kind of interesting remark. But it's this this power, this coercion, almost if you if you like this inner. Um, how should I say this inner drunk in German, this inner uh, push, drive, drive yes, yes, you know, yes. to go forward, to go forward. And you see, this goes on until he dies at the age of 74. I could give you mm -hmm. passages from the last year or so where he, where he moves actually from geology, from the rocks. You know, he moves more and more to biology. He moves to the future. He moves to the development of right. humanity. Right. Where I are we going? To. Yes. And so I, we're, we're going we, we're gonna to go there at least a little bit. I do. Uh, I think something that I hadn't realized until I got into Teilhard was um, 
that he he was an exact contemporary of Einstein. They died in the same year in 1955. Right. That he was a paleontologist. He was he was off in in China. He was helping authenticate the remains of the, the Peking man fossil. Um, so so it, it, his science didn't didn't directly overlap, but he was also there as as. Uh, as the theory of relativity was born, as yeah. quantum mechanics were born. Yeah. So there was this whole new view of space-time and the universe yeah. that was un- unfolding on many spheres. Um, but, you know, what I'm aware of is that I, I think even now, a hundred years on from some of that, we um, the, those of us who are not scientists have scarcely taken in, mm. you know, how um, that new understanding of the universe, you know, actually... Um, changed our whole imagination about space and time, but Teilhard did. He did. He did know that, um, and it, it, it's so clear to me that that all of that is is there. And yet, he he's taking it to a different place as a as a as a theological and mm. spiritual thinker, mm. right? Mm. This this idea of it, this cosmic vision. I mean, even the word cosmic, which took on a whole new meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, through science in the twentieth century. I mean, when you think about about how he used that term, you know, what what, what was what did he mean when he when he early talked on, about the, very mm-hmm. you see, very early on, he was also uh, a promoter of the notion of the biosphere. The biosphere, that yes. word, was only created in eighteen seventy four. And who was, created that word? It was uh, somebody else, right? Uh, it's a Swiss. It's a Swiss uh-huh. Swiss. Um, paleontologist, Swiss geographer who created this word and he wrote four volumes which are translated as The Face of the Earth and Teilhard uses that title for an essay in 1922. He he wrote a sort of review about this because he's suddenly aware that we are not just living in one place, in one country, but it's, as you have just said, space and time. We're living on a globe. We're living on the whole Earth and the Earth has a face and a kind of identity, almost a physiognomy like like a person. It's like a cosmic person. And for him, religiously speaking, he sees this cosmic person as the body of Christ. I mean, he he sees it really in his own Christian... um, Right, and he even used the term cosmic Christ. Yeah, he uses Uh cosmic Christ. He speaks Uh about the... And he sees us, you see, he speaks about we are... We are but an atom in the universe. We are, and let us all be an atom in the body of Christ, he writes. You see, he's mm. looking always for something mm. very, very comprehensive, all embracing, all interconnected. So uh, it, it's really fascinating to see this. And he had this idea about, you know, about the oneness of humanity and the globe in the trenches, on the night watch, when he was observing in the dark, the rising moon, the full moon, and he suddenly he writes, it's extraordinary, he writes as if he had seen this very famous iconic photograph that the astronauts <laughs> took 50 years or 40 years later, the uh-huh. planet... Uh, the planet as one planet in blue space, you know, just in this vast space. And he writes and says, well, what is this? How should we describe this? I mean, he, he doesn't even ask these questions. He, he's groping for words. So mm-hmm. first he says, are we alone in the universe? Are we, you know, is there no 
Is there no way out? Are we imprisoned in the universe? What is it? Should we call this the sphere of the human or what should we call it? A monad? And then after the war, when he had regular discussions with a philosopher friend, a quite a famous philosopher, Edouard Leroy, they met and they discussed all these ideas and they came up together with this notion of the no-sphere, which is a dead, right. it's a further development, it's a flowering out and grows out of the biosphere. And it's it, the N-O-O-S, which yes. and nos is the Greek yeah. term for mind, right? right. So, so the way I understand it, the biosphere is the, is the, is the, the earth of the layer of living things, and the noosphere is, 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 is really about th- th- the, the, the layer of, of thinking beings and, and in, in fact, of consciousness, right? Consciousness. right which is the, and yeah. more. You see, sometimes people call it the, the sphere of the mind, but in my view, that's mistaken or mis- yes. let's say it's misleading because noose, the Greek term of noose, is yeah. not our reason. It is the, 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 all-embracing inner vision of really deeply understanding something, having the vision that takes everything into account, which is not partial and separate and cuts things up. It's not about analysis, it's about synthesis, you see. Okay. And he has right, this, right. the sphere of, no, the noosphere, I call it, it's the sphere of thinking, yes, but it's also the thinking that connects us. It's a sphere of action. It's a sphere of the specifically human, which he feels is still emerging. We are not right, fully, right, uh, right. how should I say, the human is not fully developed yet. Right. So, so, so I want to, I want to stop there and because it's evolutionary is, is mm. how he thinks about mm. it. And so, and that's the other huge sphere of science that, uh, the, the theory of evolution. Yeah. That, that the world is still wrestling with in his lifetime and in some ways in ours. Today, yes. Right. And that he, as a Jesuit, of course, this is an intimate struggle that he has. Um, all of his career, his um, he he sees evolution as I mean, there's this phrase, the holiness of evolution. Yes, God is at work within life. Yes, and not just that. I mean, as we said, he is working on the fossils of of what we call the Peking man in in, in China. He's yeah. he he's dealing with uh, what he absolutely understands to be uh, the pre. Pre, I don't know what was it? pre-human development. Pre-human, pre-human development, forms. which is which is a the most material manifestation of of Darwin's theory of evolution. Um, but then, as you just pointed at, he is he sees he absolutely sees evolution, but he sees evolution happening both on a physical and a, or he says, what does he say? Yes, that, that that evolution proceeds towards spirit. Right. And in some ways you have a sense that even as he looks at Peking Man and and he sees uh, himself as a as a 20th century human looking back at this primitive creature, that he also feels like humanity is still I- 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 um, evolving, evolving spiritually yeah. as well as physically. And he imagines that thousands and thousands of years in the future, uh, you kind of think he's, he, he, he thinks in terms of that kind of evolutionary time, which is very slow and 
in uh, hard to decipher at the moment, but that 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 he imagines future man looking back and seeing a primitive spirituality. But he imagines this flowering of consciousness, as you mm, as mm. you just described, mm. this evolutionary consciousness. It's mind blowing, mind boggling. When you you know, I mean, <laughs> really, the whole region of cyberspace. You see, there are some people who say Teya is the patron saint of the World Wide Web. He's he's foreseen this. Yes. He has somehow you yes. know had this idea that we we will intensify our communication but what are we doing what do we do with it that is really the big question and the big choice and option because it's not happening automatically it's not something uh, that will necessarily finish in a good way we have to really create it and that he was very very aware of our responsibilities and of our uh, dangers and of our um, you know, of our, what should I say, our tendency that things go wrong, sometimes terribly wrong. But he felt that in the end, everything will come together for the good, you know. And that is really, I would think that is rooted in his deep Christian faith, that he really feels there is hope, we are going forward, we are creating a future, we must, we must. He said at the end of his life, he wrote to his to his cousin in the letters uh, from a traveler, he writes that I'm that he's less and less interested in geology, but more and more in the human and the the ultra human, the further development, if you like, of the human species. Where right. are we going as a species? Right. You know, and that is the spiritual kind of calling, if you like, the 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 need to really rise higher, to go further, to to develop more. In human terms, right? I wish we could find. There's a passage. I um, just this is a little bit of an aside, but it came to me while I was preparing. I had this conversation yet, uh, recently. Someone came up to me and just said they'd they'd become fascinated to think about how the internet um, and all of this technology that that is that is is taking us to you know some, is taking us somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> whether somewhere. we can whether we we cannot you know it, 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 it is transcendent in its way. Um, and that they were so fascinated that that all of it still comes from the earth, right? That it's it's all made. iPads and iPhones are made of rocks and metal. Yeah. And then that came back to me as I was oh, as I was preparing yes. for this interview. With yes, you. And, that's but, interesting. But that's also actually our awareness of that is one of the places where we're having to stop and think ethically, right? Yes. About, yes. about this technology. Yes. Um so so yes, so so the the, the evolutionary nature um and it seems to me, uh, and this, that that his, so so that he so again he was pushing also he absolutely embraced Darwin's science, but um, the, the the struggle that Darwin saw, and I think the maybe the the pessimism that yeah. that he experienced in a in in some of the way people um applied the idea of evolution to thinking about human nature yeah. and nature he he talked about the the problem of action and it, it seems to me that you know there's this language that's so interesting all the way through his theology and his writing about zest for living oh, and yes. ardor and vigor and vitality and that that he really saw, um, yes, he's, the the point of the greater consciousness was greater action, 
And it seems to me that he was very focused, uh, and I'd like for you to explain, you know, how, you know, because I think, I think this is very unusual. I don't, I don't, I don't even think you see theologians writing about this, or, or even social activists writing so much about this, that, that the, that to do the important work, um, is hard, that it's hard to find the energy for that, and that mm-hmm. that is the great challenge, not just to be conscious and to know what we need to do, mm-hmm. but to constantly summon that zest for living, that ardor. Uh, that that takes us beyond where we even know we can go. That's that's very well put because he's very very interested in the sources and resources of human energy. He says in the same letter that I quoted from earlier that he uh, is interested in the human development and the ultra human that. It's about human energetics. He spoke about human right, energetics. Right, energetics. He coined a lot of words, didn't he? He found, he found language to be restrictive, and yeah. he was always <laughs> making up words. And that makes it so difficult to read him because he didn't, He, you know, he, once the terminology was there, he further developed it and he changed it. And it's very difficult. And then the way he wrote his essays and the way they were published, it's very difficult to study him in depth. You have to do a lot of detective work, how yeah. he used his ideas and when did they first appear. But this zestful, you see, he has got from very early on, he speaks about, you know, the stream of becoming and the, the power of life and how everything is living around us and how alive and he says to his friends trust life go ahead push forward don't go on a retreat push forward push forward i've just i've just discovered this i've read a a recent correspondence that was only published last year between him and one of his closest friends who was also interested in paleontology this was a frenchman called a french count called max beguin and his Mm -hmm. wife simone who first also started publishing Tiyas essays secretly and giving them to friends. Now, this man, Max Beguin, he went to Morocco in the 30s to develop a big factory among uh, Moroccans to develop, um, to collect roses for rose essence for the perfume industry. And he wanted to do this. (laughs) This may sound very odd, but he wanted to do this for... Uh, as a kind of cooperative with the indigenous people and he ran into a lot of trouble among the colonialists. The French colonialists didn't want that. They wanted to be in charge and give the orders all from above and Max tried to apply Teja's ideas and what is so interesting in this correspondence which is not just Teja's letters but also the letters some of the letters from Max you see how someone who works very practically in in industry and economic and business tries to apply Teya's visionary ideas and Teya's transformative ideas and his zest for life in very, very difficult and unusual situations. And that's very concrete, you know. And, right, right. And he's in touch with them until the end of his life. So he was in touch with them for over 30 years. He met this man in the trenches in in 1915 and he, he corresponds with him till 1955 so you have a very good documentation there how someone applies Teya's forward thinking and positive thinking and the zest for life 
even when the going gets very hard. And yeah, I use, right. I use, I mean, I use this myself in my own life. His his way of really approaching this because it's so empowering. It's because it's always trying not to give up, but to see something positive, even when things go very badly. You know, in Teya, the first visit to China, for example, in 1923, he wrote afterwards reflections. He said, well, you know, it didn't really turn out the way he had expected it. And he said, well, what have I actually gained from this? You know, have I gained anything? And this right. is always something you can ask. Even when, you know, Vanyan is ill or has an accident or things don't work out or relationships don't work out, can I really distill something positive that still gives me energy rather than destroys me and, uh, you know, puts me down? And I've used this with students. You may find this very interesting. I've read some of these passages with first-year students who had never even heard Teya's name. And some of them have found this so empowering. And, and at the end, I asked them always, write me a few page, a few sentences. What has Teya meant to you or how do you see his, his thinking? And I've had most amazing testimonies from students. And one girl who had been also an artist, she, she wrote, she said, you know, she said, this has helped me more to get over depression than all the medicines that the doctor gave me last mm -hmm. year. And I found this really quite a powerful testimony. Do you have a Do you have some words, some some uh, of him or of this of this uh, correspondent of him? Do you have any of those writings in front of you, or maybe mm -hmm. you could send us something? After no, the I have. I mentioned it to Trellis when we talked on the yes, uh, Trellis yes. when we spoke on the phone. This translate this uh, correspondence is only in French. It's not being translated, oh, but okay. I could send you some sentences. Yes, yes. It, it is really quite powerful because mm -hmm. you know. Can you just imagine? Teilhard wrote at the beginning, just before the Second World War. He wrote an essay: "Let's save mankind." Sauvons l'humanité in French. Let us save humanity. You know. And Simon, Max's wife, who uh, used to type and cyclostyle these essays, they produced. 10,000 copies of this to distribute among their friends. Can you imagine 10,000 copies in 1939? Right, right, I right. mean, it's really to influence people to try and be positive rather than negative and to help moving forward rather than uh, trying to just be passive. Do you see right, what I mean? Right, so right. For mm -hmm. me, these energy resources, that's a very, very important theme. I've written quite a bit about this because uh, what Tega also connects this to, and I think I should mention this here, is uh, what are the energy resources, what are the spiritual energy resources we have in the human community? And he says in several essays, he says the following, we have thousands of engineers and scientists who who calculate all the time how many energy resources we have left in terms of coal and uranium and metals right, and right. so on. But he said, where are the technicians of the spirit? Where mm, are the spiritual mm. energy mm. resources that we need for our own self-development? And he says, there we have to also look at the resources of wisdom we have in the global community, the resources of faith of the different religions. And he was a pioneer of early interface dialogue. He felt we have to communicate to each other the best that we possess in our traditions rather than the worst and right. help to work uh, together to stimulate human energy and spiritual development.
It's it's just it's so interesting how he he, he takes something that we talk about a lot, but he's yeah. coming at it from such a different angle that it opens it up. Right. Um. Right. I mean, here here's some I did here's some lines from an essay he wrote um, about zest for zest for living. Yeah. Um. Uh. By zest for living or zest for life, I mean here to put it very approximately that spiritual disposition at once intellectual and effective and effective, in virtue. Of which life, the world, and action seem to us, on the whole, luminous, interesting, appetizing. Right. And then he says it is something utterly and entirely different from a mere emotional state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, you know, it's very powerful. It's and in French, you see, the the French expression is le goût de vivre. It's not just the zest; it's the taste. You have to have almost ah, a taste, like ah. like for music or for art. Right. Or so for it's effect. sensory as well. You know, which, it is sensory. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. it's, you almost feel it at your fingertips. You know, what is uh-huh. this? What makes you? I mean, I sometimes say, what makes you tick? What makes people get out of bed in the morning and get right. them to go? You know, right. how do you keep get going when you know when you're tired going up? mountainside or when the weather is bad or when when someone is dying or this you see he wrote two um two essays on the energy of suffering now that is an unusual way of looking and right. that was because he had a sister who was permanently disabled she had i've forgotten what she had what uh, what uh, illness she had but she she was in bed for 20 or 30 years and then she died and she she had a kind of uh, she had created a fellowship of people who were permanently disabled and she produced a book in about uh, or someone produced a book in 1950 and Tia wrote a forward for this on the value and the energy of suffering how this can be transformed in a so, into a source of energy also, which is an unusual way of thinking, very yes. unusual way of thinking. Well, and I think it's important to um, to come back to the fact that <laughs> that he did not he didn't articulate fra- lovely phrases like zest for living out of a life that uh, felt like it was charmed at every stage. No, I mean, no. right? He his life had a lot of struggle in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he, he did have a. a um, I think a pretty solid childhood, but but as a Jesuit, these two passions of his yes. um, were constantly called into question. As we've said, he was writing all his life, and he was very poetic. He wasn't just a thinker; mm. he really was a writer. And none of this could be published. He, he, again, mm. he 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 would send things to Rome for approval, which never came. Mm. Um, and as you say. Um, I mean, his science, when you look back on it, there were these many accomplishments and high points, but, but that, that was long years spent laboring. And um, so, th- so th- you know, he talks about struggle, and then, of course, there's the experience of the war, not as an abstraction. No. As something that he was always also, he was always struggling even as he was articulating these ideas. Uh, that is very true. And also in China, he saw, the, you know, on his many expeditions across China, I mean, don't forget, he created the basis for the geology teaching on China. I mean, he began that and he became very, very respected by the Chinese and became part of the Chinese Geological Survey in, in 1930, 31. That is how they invited him to, to look at Peking Man and so on. But he he really... Uh, felt that you have to be involved in so many different ways. It's 
it's, I mean, he had a richness and diversity of life that very few people had. And he traveled with other scientists, whether Chinese or, or Western. He traveled across the lengths and breadths of China. Mm-hmm. And he saw, you know, particularly in the 1930s, all these warlords fighting. I mean, during the famous yellow expedition that he made with a, with a team of Renault specialists who tried out new uh, caterpillar cars to go across the desert. They were captured. They were captured. I mean, instead of going for a few <laughs> months, he was away almost a year and it affected okay. his health in heat, in terrible cold. They had to live in, in tents. They couldn't communicate with the outside world and they were held captive and it was a terrible experience. But he saw how the peasants, how poor, impoverished people lived on the soil. And there are testimonies by Chinese workers who have experienced him or people who were wounded, who he bandaged and so on. I mean, there are many, many aspects of Teya which are not necessarily immediately visible when you open his uh, writings. Right, you right, know? right, and right. People have really... I have heard Chinese... In 1981, UNESCO celebrated centenary of Teya's birth through a symposium in Paris. And I went to that and present at it was an eminent Chinese paleontologist who had been trained by Teilhard and who gave us quite a testimony about his, you know, about his, what, what you really felt was the power of presence of this man and his utter modesty and, you know, his, his ability. His smile. I noticed that people also mention his smile, yes. his demeanor was, yes, yes. was magnetic. And also people said he could relate to an ordinary worker or to a housewife or to a highest intellectual or a scientist. He was at home anywhere and everywhere in a way, which is not, it's not everybody who can do that. And um, so I want to talk about, I want to kind of dig a little bit more deeply into some of the particularities of his thought that, that also people now listening might might learn from. But I mean, one thing I do think in, in this context it's it's good to mention is, again, he integrated all of this into his theology and into his vision of spiritual evolution. Um, uh, one thing that's very striking is this mass on the world that he said in China. Oh, yes. Right? So here, here you kind of have um, how he captured much of this in his religious sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, Since I have neither bread nor wine nor altar, I will raise myself beyond these symbols up to the pure majesty of the real itself. Mm-hmm. I, your priest, will make the whole earth my altar, and on it I will offer you all the labors and sufferings of the world. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful passage, wonderful mm-hmm. passage. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, he talks about getting, you know, coming out of his tent, seeing the rising sun, the dawn, the dawn. And I mean, in the desert, it must have been a a magnificent spectacle, you know, very, very, a great silence. And then this wonderful natural phenomena, you know, he he was really so taken up by this and, 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 and deeply, deeply moved. And then he could, of course, in his scientific training, he could related to both the evolutionary development of the earth and of life, but also spiritually he saw it as the 
you know, the, the communication or the being at work of divine energies, spiritual energies that, that penetrate us all and that we can connect with and be empowered by. I mean, this is where he talks this, this divine milieu. He speaks in the Mess on the World about the divine milieu that is also concept or an idea and experience that comes from the First World War onwards. This How would you describe that, the divine milieu, what he meant when he used that term? You know, for me, uh, I, it's the milieu in the French sense is the center, but we also use milieu in terms of the environment. It's the, both the center. Something mm, comes mm. together like in a diamond, you know, just something captured in one center, but then it radiates throughout the entire uh, mm. Teya used a lot the image of the circle and the image of the sphere, like the sphere of the globe, the, right. s- the atmosphere, the lithosphere, the biosphere, the noosphere. You see, he sees everything three-dimensionally or even, you know, beyond in 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 four-dimensional space-time dimensions because of his scientific training. But right. this divine milieu is... Um, I, I see the divine milieu as... A spiritual expression of what, more secularly speaking, he calls the noosphere. You know, the noosphere is, on one hand, the human side which connects to the divine milieu as the spiritual uh, energy center and powerhouse, if you like. You know, the divine is, right. it's the presence of the divine. It's God is everywhere in, in a sense, you know, hidden. Uh, not visible, not but but somehow reachable. And he talks about, you know, I, I when I think about it, God is at the end of my pen, is here. But but mm, I mm. can connect with something which is an energy that opens me up into higher and higher worlds. You see, again, that yeah, that energy illusion was it also in the context of the divine milieu that he used. He spoke of the human as matter at its most incendiary stage. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. That's a uh, which wonderful, is also such a wonderful image. It's a wonderful uh, phrase, really. So you see, I think uh, he has this this dynamic, transformative awareness from from his evolutionary approach. So one could call his spirituality also an evolutionary spirituality, as some people do. Mm-hmm. But he sees. In everything that develops from the big, I mean, at his time, uh, we didn't, uh, people didn't speak about the Big Bang, but we would today, you know, that there is a centration of matter and this centration arises or develops through complexification. It's the complexity building up. Uh, building up, you know, and he does this in his book, The Human Phenomenon, from the simplest, uh, you know, the molecules, the, at- the atoms, the molecules, the cells, you know, into human for into forms of life, into human forms, and into communities. It's it's a process that is ongoing, hmm. but it is complexification in a way. And I mean, today this is very important in complexity theory in biology. But he sees that. In the evolutionary pattern, everything develops in terms of divergence. There is greater and greater profusion of diversity. And that's also true among the human species, you know, all the different people. It's more and more diverse, but he sees the... Uh, the opposite movement at uh, at uh, play also the divergence ultimately comes together in convert it there is a convergent movement 
by people coming together, by forms coming together, by complexifying. And out of this movement emerges something new, always something, the next step, taking up what was there before, but emerging into something new. And he feels that we are today at a very, very important threshold of emerging into a new phase of humanization or what he calls hominization, of of becoming human in a different way from the way our forebears were. Right, right. You see, it's this, this immense, and he has this, uh, absolute, how should I say this, um, what is it, a, a kind of call, a kind of uh, movement towards the future. There is this pull from the future and towards the future. And he is less and less interested in the past and more and more interested in where are we going, what are we doing with the potential we have, with the resources we have, with the imagination, the creativity, the consciousness, the complexification of people thinking together and acting together. What is all this aiming for? Do you see what I mean? I do, and 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 even as you say, he's less interested in the past. I think that his 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 work as a paleontologist, his sense of time that he had from that, yeah. of the time that change takes, yes, uh, which he measured, you know, which would be measured in thousands and millions of years rather than yeah. decades, also maybe helped keep his his own. I mean, he helped helped keep that helped keep that vision vital, vigorous, and hopeful. Yes. Because he didn't, he didn't, he didn't just see things in terms of what happens, happened yesterday or tomorrow, or t- or was possible ten years from now. No, that's very true. And he's, you know, he has a really what some people call a metaphysics of the future. He right. Is, and he said when he came back from the Yellow Expedition, from some of these exhibition expeditions, I, you know, I'm a pilg. I have come from the past, but I'm a pilgrim of the future. I'm going Mm. forward. Mm. And it's about going forward, not hanging, not uh, dwelling on what we achieved in the past and how far we got or what we lost. No, it's it's what we are, you know, not only what we are now, but what we can be to be more, to be more. That is was for him always, you know, we can be more, we can do more, we can... uh, be more fulsome, we can be more perfect, if you like, we can be more spiritual, we can be more loving. I mean, we haven't said anything about the energies of love yet, which is really the central insight for him, you know, because at at one level, he speaks very early on in the 20s of uh, the law of complexity consciousness. Now, this sounds very abstract, but what he means by this, when matter material arrangements become more and more complex. The more complex they get, the more they become centered. You know, and you can see this in the build-up, let's say, from the atoms to the molecules to the cells. They become more and more centered, and the more centered it becomes, the more it becomes, if you like, psychic and conscious, and at the human level, self-conscious. Do you see? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. what he calls the law of complexity consciousness, which is an ongoing pattern running through evolution and running through the human community. So he feels that if we organize our communities, our societies in a more loving, in a more constructive way, we also become 
more conscious, we are more self-conscious, we're becoming more, we can become more spiritual. You see, that, that's the way he sees it. And, and I, do, I do want to talk about love as an energy. So, so again, to kind of bring this back to a more hmm, practical level, you, you talked, you know, again, all this time that he's having these large ideas, um, he is so, con- the, his, uh, his sense of the struggle that's always involved in that is important. His sense that the point of greater consciousness is action mm-hmm. uh, to make these things, uh, make this change occur. Um, um, and you, you mentioned a minute ago that he he saw he said we have to draw on all the resources we have for for energy for spiritual mm. energy. So talk about love also as one of those. Uh, love, yeah, that's yes. uh, for him. That's really really very central. You see, he sees this coming together, uniting. You know, even at the level of the molecule and the cell, he sees this as a kind of rudimentary um, structure of coming together, and he feels that. Love is a cosmic force. It, it it brings the universe into being and it brings all the different things into existence. And at the human level, it has a very specific spiritual, material, uh, bodily, cosmic form. It, all these different aspects come together. Yes, but I mean, it's per- cosmic and, and in the most personal experience at once. Right, right. Uh-huh. And he feels that the power of love is the power that humans have to transform the world and themselves and their communities. And he writes about love as a spiritual energy force that is unexplored, that we haven't Hmm. studied enough, that we haven't learned to teach and apply and practice enough. And what is for me quite extraordinary is that Teilhard writes about the energies of love and the positive transformation that love can or could uh, work in the human community. He speaks about, uh, I mean, this sounds again quite abstract, but he uses the Latin word amor for love, amorization. We need more amorization mm. in the human community. We need okay. to free those energies and make, you know, not love, not love as the, uh, as a sentimental feeling, but love as a really, as a transformative, deep spiritual power. He wrote a famous, um, an essay which finishes in 1934 and it finishes with the words, the day will come when after harnessing, uh, after whatever it is harnessing, the powers of matter and of space and of the winds and all the different kind of physical and material powers, we will harness for God the powers of love and then humanity will have discovered fire for a second time. That's a very mysterious, very famous quotation. And uh, an American um, uh, musician and manager, a woman who has got lots of different, uh, um, what's the word, different competence, she has written a whole book about this, a woman called Anne Hillman, Awakening the Energies of Love and how this is part of the whole process of the maturation of humanity. Now, The extraordinary thing for me is that the words, the very words that Teya uses when he writes about love are paralleled completely and utterly independently in the works of the Russian-American sociologist 
Petrim Sorokin, who is the founding father of sociology at the at Harvard University, huh. and who died later than Tia, but who has written in 1954, he wrote a book, The Ways and Power of Love, which was uh, reprinted in 2002 by the Temple Foundation. It is about the transformative power of love, where Sorokin, as a sociologist, looks at societies in the past, and he says, like Tia, we have not sufficiently explored the energies of love. We know mm. a lot mm. about all the other energies, but what could love do to heal the world, uh, to to help us when people have mental illness, to help us to overcome war and violence? I mean, Sorokin belief that it could be done, but that we have to work at it very, very hard. And Which that's OTR also believed. Yeah, that's exactly. Do, and, you know, that's yeah. independent. It's kind of like... So they the, didn't... You don't have any sense that they knew each other or knew of each other's Nothing. Work. I have yeah. written a long article about this and published it. Yeah. There's no contact with them, between them whatsoever. It's totally independent, but it's like a court of zeitgeist. You know, two people right, having right. very similar ideas, which happens in other cases. So um, I want to ask you just about a couple of other th- uh, details of his thinking, and then and then let's talk about how his ideas resonate now. Um, this, the idea of seeing, seeing, and the and the difference between seeing and knowing, mm-hmm. is, is that important? Is that is that a, a a tool also for 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 people to get inside this thinking? Yes, I think so. It's. Uh, I mean, that would need quite a bit further exploration. Right. Well, then no, but no, right. yeah. no, I think I can say as much that, you know, s- knowing, it depends what you mean by knowing. Seeing is another way, but a non-intellectual way of knowing, you know, and I think yeah. knowing and seeing combine knowing in terms of understanding, a deeper understanding, it's really coming out of the guts and out of the heart and right. really how we can actually be really certain or sure about this. Like a person who has a very deep faith, whether it's a Buddhist or Jew or Hindu or Muslim or Christian, it doesn't matter that you really feel you know something in your life that matters to you very deeply or in human relationships where you have basic fundamental trust. I think that is so, so Mm. deep in us. And that is this or this original trust, which is so much part of life, you know, that every child is born with and that we often destroy through education or bad treatment and so on. I feel really that uh, this seeing, this inner seeing, is it's of course connected with our faculties of imagination, of creativity, but also of sensibility, how far mm-hmm. we have trained our senses to be observant, mm. to listen attentively to when someone speaks to us, to to be reflective in terms of what we respond, or to really, um, you know, see the needs of people, or see the joy of people when they're really happy or when they're fulfilled or when they have, uh, you know, achieved something for which they had to work very hard or strive. I mean, there are all these different dimensions. So I feel seeing is a a much deeper spiritual um, 
um, experience and facility that people can have. Right, but, and very accessible. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I think I think you need a training for this. Okay. It's not something, you know, like, uh, you know, we can all sing, but we don't all become singers or dancers or whatever, but we can move our body, we can right. use our senses, and in the same way you have to, we have used, to use our mind, but we have, of course, different intellectual and personal uh, capacities and and uh, abilities. But I do think we need uh, guidance, or we need uh, an appeal to our uh, imagination and to develop these faculties. I speak. This is not a word by Tia. I, I, working on Tia has given me the idea of really introducing another word which is called pneumatophore that comes from biology and it means carrier of spirit and it is a biological it's from biological taxonomy it means the air roots of plants in mangroves Mm. you know and Mm. the biologists call them carriers of carriers of air really because the air roots take the air from through these you know, from the air they right. take the plants take their nourishment. And I say we need we need spiritual pneumatophores, we need ideas and people to develop this uh, capacity that we all have but that often is atrophied in terms of spiritual sensitivity and development. Right. And we need teachers, right? And we yes. always have we have always needed teachers. And so, I mean I think that's <clears throat> that's an interesting way to talk about how in our time um, many people have rediscovered Teilhard. Yes. Um, and I wonder, how long have you been working with him? And, uh, well, it's uh, 19, I started in 1963, so that's, okay. <laughs> that's 50 years almost. Right. So, so I'm, I'd be curious, over these 50 years, um, how have you experienced it? Have you experienced an evolution of of a discovery of him, and also, um, has there been a change in in what people are drawn to, what they're what they're paying attention to? Uh, I can say yes to both questions. I mean, when um, when his works were first published, which was mainly in the late nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, up to the mid nineteen seventies, young people and many many. I mean, his his works were bestsellers at the time, and there was a lot of interest in him. But then later on it became really less so because people moved on and they thought, oh, this is rather, you know, passé and maybe other people have gone further. And and there was less of an interest. For example, in England, none of his works are in print. And huh. it, it, his works, you see, also not, um, they're not edited and published in the best way for people to gain easy access. Right, you really notice that too. I really notice the difference in translations because we got some of these books from the library and they were yeah. older translations. Yeah, yeah. and that mm-hmm. makes a big difference, you see. Mm-hmm. And you really have to, to understand what, you can't just do a textual translation word by word. You have to really understand what is saying and how it relates to other things and how these works were created. So you need also a whole, uh, you know, you need a whole, what is called a whole hermeneutic, a whole style of interpreting him to know how they, the, the words are contextualized and right, where they right. were created and how they, I feel really that there is a very close um, integration of his life and work and that his life and vision are really all of 
they are united, they are one. And you can't really look at his works without looking at his life and his Right, so just as a, a spiritual writings yeah, at, he, uh, separate he, from that. Yeah, from he, writes, he, he writes not at an academic mm-hmm. academician or abstractly uh, in his armchair. He writes from his experience in the field as a geologist, as a pastor, in, in the war. I mean, he writes from, a, from an inner necessity and in a way he wants to communicate a message and a vision that he has. This is why I call him a spirit of fire. You know, the life and vision, Mm. it's really animated. It is fired. It is driven, if you like. It is called. It is is brought alive by so many, the coming together of so many different things. But you see, I have found you need uh, need an explanation. You need people to explain this uh, to understand Tia and to have an access to Tia. I think there is especially in the United States, there is now a coming back and a new interest. And it's interesting that several scientists have pointed out that, you know, because Teilhard's books, when they were published, became such bestsellers, people have concentrated on his spiritual message and they have almost forgotten that he was science. science. You see, for example, David Sloan Wilson, who is quite a well-known evolutionologist Mm -hmm. in in the States, he's he's written in his latest book, it is wrong for to be read only for his spiritual message. Let his scientific flame burn brightly again. You see? Oh, that's interesting because yes. he's also not a religious thinker. No, is he, he isn't. No, he isn't. But he's written in his latest book, which is uh-huh. called uh, I've got uh, I've got the reference here. What is it called? It's called the Neighborhood Project. Using oh, evolu- yes, using evolution to improve my city one block at a time. He's written about Teilhard in that book. He has five. Chapter five is that called. Is Enter the noosphere. Enter the noosphere. <laughs> and he's absolutely bowled over by it. Okay. And he says that he was invited to a theology science conference at the Vatican a couple of years ago or whatever. And he felt then obliged that he had to really read something on Tia. And he wrote The Human Phenomenon, which he had never read. Right. And he was absolutely bowled over. And he, he says actually that Tia is still, um, you know, that he is still very, very much... Uh, in in the you know in the interest of our age that he's he was adva- in advance at his time and he's hmm. still in advance hmm. of some hmm. scientists today which I found an interesting That's statement really interesting um, what I notice what I've noticed in recent years is that um, many environmentalists or or, or some of these um, there there are some really interesting dialogues between. Um, theologians and scientists and environmental activists, and that Teilhard comes up in that context. Now, it seems to me that in his lifetime, I mean, he was also there as industrialization was taking off. And it seems to me that he, I don't see him being all that attentive to that or concerned about it in in the way of environmental activism that we think now. In in contrast to somebody like Einstein, you know, who was very concerned about... um, about physicists and physicists and chemists becoming purveyors of weapons, but so how do you, um, you know, how do you react to that way that Teilhard is being taken up? How do you see that? You mean that he's perhaps not sufficiently environmentally aware? Is that what you're asking? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, I think I'm not sure that he was personally. I'm, that does not mean that his that his that his thinking isn't absolutely applicable to, you no. know, to current concerns. It is. I mean, I've you know, there's a whole. Uh, 
um, book on Tia and people on and the planet, and I've written on his ecological understanding because there are many mm-hmm. passages which are much more modern than you might think. Okay. But you see, I I think he was probably not always sufficiently aware of the dangers of science. I think that's a criticism one can make that he was too enthusiastic. But part of that may be due to the fact that he was really far away from European developments for twenty years. Right, you know? right. I mm-hmm. mean, he may just have he been. Cairo, he was in he yeah. was in China. Yeah, mm-hmm. that he may have been too far um, out of the mainstream of these discussions, you see. But I think he had a sense for the devi- environment, particularly because he was so concerned with planet Earth, you see. And mm-hmm. I think one can see in many ways what Wilson says in his book that they are, uh, he calls him a titan of reflection, an individual building upon the ideas of Darwin and hundreds of other thinkers that preceded him. Uh, And he says, and this is an interesting expression, he says Teilhard was more than an individual. He was a node in a vast system of cooperation, Hmm. the cultural practices that we call science. His worldview is suffused with the immensity of times and space and embedded within the great arc of evolution. Wilson asks, why have professional evolutionists forgotten Teilhard as well as the humanistic side of Jules Naxley? That's by the way. He speaks of Teilhard's exceptional act of brilliance in viewing humans not merely as highly successful species, but Mm. in considering humanity as a new evolutionary process capable of generating a diversity of cultural forms, just as life is capable of generating a diversity of organic forms. This makes the origin of our species in some ways as momentous as the origin of life itself. I find that a very, very thought-provoking passage. Yes, yes. It's a a fascinating example of TR being taken up up in the present. You said... um, a little while ago, that he was a uh, that he was ahead of his time in terms of um, interfaith or interreligious yes. matters. Now, he was he was deeply, profoundly Christian, right? I mean, we yes. talked about. I mean, he what was he talked about Jesus as the mover and driver of evolution yes. of yes. of the cosmic Christ. There was there's no there's no doubt about that, and there's and. Um, Mm, so he he was Christocentric, um, as as the theologians would say. Yes. Um, but I did want to ask you, and I and I certainly want to ask you since you made that comment, you know, how he would think about the plurality of faith in the world now, and how that how you think that is reflected in his vision of spiritual evolution. Well, that's a good question. I've written a whole book about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of particularly Teilhard de Chardin and Eastern religions, you see, when he first went to China in 1923, that's, a, that's almost a century ago, he was looking, and I could quote you many passages, he was looking for renewal of Western Christianity through Buddhism. Hmm. And he couldn't find it because the kind of Buddhism he found, you know, he he went to the wrong places, if you like, you know, the, the <laughs> deserts and the the kind of high uh, high uh, mountains of China is not exactly the place where you find living Buddhism at its most vibrant. Do you see right. what I mean? Right. But right. he he was very interested when he came back whilst he was in China, but also when he came back uh, to Paris in 1946 after the war, he made a special 
special effort to learn more about different religions. And he went to the uh, Museum of Orient of Eastern Art, Musée Guimet in Paris, borrowed books, read on Hinduism particularly, and he wanted to find out how far these different religions, particularly Eastern religions, could uh, relate to what we are doing in the West. So this was something that many people were interested in, and he joined a, a small group that was a, a French branch of the World Congress of Faith, which was founded in 1936 in Britain, and which was founded in the the French branch was founded after the war in uh, in Paris. And Teilhard was in fact. Uh, invited to give the keynote lecture for the opening of this and he was not allowed to appear in public and speak about these matters so he wrote a piece which someone else had to read out you see and it starts what is yeah. the piece about it's about faith in man the human developing starting with what he calls with an ecumenism at the basis we have to come together and work together to build up the world and then we can also reach the spirit together or, or come closer in our spiritual understanding I mean that was his view was that really that the different religions are like big currents or rivers that flow in different directions but somehow they can also come together now because humanity is coming together so he was really mm. looking for a greater unity I do I do though I, I love the, 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 this image you, you noted a moment ago about divergence and convergence yeah. and, and it's not it's not an either or it's both at the same time right. and in fact it's the two together that give each their vitality you know mm. the, 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 I, I, I imagine that you know that, that his idea of convergence would not be a simple harmonizing but but that the, the divergence in fact is um, is what is the vitality of these these traditions? It's complexity, the complexity, yes, the complexity. complexity. Yes, complexity. so he would not be doing away with that, and I, I don't even imagine that he would be that he would be at all minimizing his his language about uh, his his very Christian uh, understanding and language. No, he might. I mean, theologically, he might uh, engage with contemporary theological ideas and and modify some of his expressions. I w I would imagine, but mm -hmm. I think basically he felt really that most of the edifice of doctrines and rituals and all the different cultural forms that have been built up in each religious tradition, in a way, you know, they're only helpful if they help us to build the future. You know, mm. and many, he often used to say that the religions really are fossilized. They still live in the Neolithic age. And Interesting for him to use language yeah, like Neolithic that, the paleontologist. Age, Neolithic yes. age. And he's really less interested in all these details. And he speaks about the dreary piety of chapels and churches. He doesn't want any of this. He's more mm. at home in nature, in the universe. In and I think in the mystical tradition, yes. both of Catholicism and, and I'm sure the other mystical traditions That's of the world. That's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. And he feels really we should concentrate on the essentials and that which deepens our life and our being and our vision and our um, possibility of greater collaboration, of coming mm. to... He was interested in the process of unification wherever uh, it was possible, in the human species, among members of different faiths, among members of different races. He wanted to bring people together and 
be united through a very deep spiritual bond. And this mm. is the power of love also. I mean, right. what the power of love, what I haven't mentioned, uh, and it's probably late to start with this now, is the, <laughs> is the power of the feminine. I mean, he was also very, very interested. He talked about the feminine as being the power of the unitive, of bringing people yes. together. It's know? very unusual that a man of his generation, I think, spoke in that way. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. true. But he had many very extraordinary women friends, artists yes. and intellectuals and so on. And he felt really without, he says, nothing in my life has happened without the influence of some feminine uh, look or participation or whatever. Right, and we we don't have time to go into this, but there is, of course, the interesting um, relationship he had with Lucille Swan, and you've written a book about the yes. correspondence between the two of them. It was a woman. Yes, he had. I mean, she. It was a passionate uh, relationship, and it was. and she would very much have liked for it to be more. And you sense that the passion was equally profound on his end, but he. He, he took his his vows uh, as a Jesuit seriously, and but and yet there was a very a great richness and depth to that to that yeah, to their love a, for each other. It's a wonderful correspondence, but uh-huh. you have you have the power of his faithfulness to his vision. Yes. He felt that people could not believe in the in the truths of his vision if he abandoned his own uh, way of living. You right. see, his yeah. order, his order was his family. The Jesuits were really his brethren, and he was at home with them. Yes. So in the last few minutes we have, um, I wonder if you just reflect with me on how your long communion with Teilhard's life and writings you know, has shaped your sense of God and reality and, and what it means to be human. That's a very big question. I know. You <laughs> have very, 10 minutes. <laughs> very quick. Well, I don't know. I could say a lot in 10 minutes and I could say a lot that was tried. I don't want to yeah. do that. But um, no, he's, he has deeply, deeply influenced me. He has empowered, encouraged and uh, inspired me. And what I feel really I have I've not really talked about his mysticism. I've written a whole book. Or I have more than one book on mysticism. How he was really... You know, his love for the spirit, for the divine, for God, how he was really carried and animated by him. And, you know, he uses these two uh, symbols, these two metaphors of the heart and fire. They run through all his writings, and Mm -hmm. that has very much inspired me. The fire and the the fire of faith, of mystical experience, of union, and the the that comes together in the center in the heart, you know, and he really mm. had a very traditional worship to uh, the heart of G- the heart of Christ, which is a very the sacred heart is a very traditional worship, but he understands something quite different by it, and he has a beautiful litany which was found on his desk when he died, where really he sees you know this at the heart of his face, which he never gave up, even though he suffered a great deal, he was very tempted by other people and by the difficulties he had to change his way, but he was faithful to this vision, which begins you know in about nineteen ten nineteen eleven and with which he died in nineteen fifty five so it's it's an extraordinary testimony of a human life. Uh, you know, of a great, great man, a great scientist, and a very deep believer. 
And what is the litany? Do you have that? Do you? Uh, I have a quote. Well, I don't know that I can find. I I would have to send you this. I can, I can find it from one of my texts. I wouldn't. I haven't got where, it in my head. It where is, is it? Where, it's is in, it in in one of the books. It is reproduced, but I can't give you. The is text. it in the, um, the your selected writings? At the end, uh, is it? it? No, no, it's not there. No? It Maybe okay. I'm not sure whether it's at the end of the heart of matter. I can't remember for this mm-hmm. moment. I don't have that I have one quoted, with me. I've quoted it somewhere in. in mm-hmm. uh, wait a minute, whether I've got it here. Wait a minute, whether I've just I've got it. Because I'd love, it. I'd love to hear it in your words, it's, um, in your voice. Yeah, <laughs> if I can find it, if I can find, I haven't got this. Wait a minute, whether I find. It's about evolution and. Let me see what it is. find it. I'm not it's sure. It's okay if you can't find it. But if you can't, then we'll have you send it to us. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I can send you the text. Mm-hmm. I would have to reproduce it um, because that is really important. It gives a real kind of signature to his life. You know, like mm-hmm. like after Pascal's death. Pascal was from the same, the, the great um, scientist and mystic of the... Uh-huh. Uh, earlier centuries in France, 16th century, I think it is 1617s. Uh, he had he had a litany written, uh, which they found sewn into his jacket, whereas Tia <laughs> had it on his desk. But it is a similarly similarly powerful statement. So, so Trent is telling me that they're probably going to get you back on the line before this project is over. So let's don't worry about it. But we may have you read it. Um, we may set up another time okay. to speak and, and have you read it then. I would love that. Okay. Um, well, I, I feel like we've covered a lot of territory and I'm aware that we could keep speaking for hours, but um, is there anything that, you know, that I haven't mentioned that just feels really pressing and important to bring up still? Well, I, um, I don't know that, you know, there is so much, there's so much that I can't really say. We have a great work to do. He says this in the 1920s, and that was taken up by Thomas Barry, and that is being carried on by a whole group of people. You know, the, the, the way we have to learn to love, the way we have to evolve as a human species at a global level, the way that we have to come together in greater oneness, the way that we have to maintain and advance the zest for life right. in order to ensure human flourishing and the flo- of all people of the planet and of the planet itself. This is very much linked to realizing our spiritual interdependence as much as our economic and biological interdependence. And I think the more people see this and become aware of that, the more they can take responsibility for uh, collaborating with each other and helping each other. Hmm. Well, I, I thank you so much, and um, I'm 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 very excited. I hadn't read Teilhard for years until I got into this, and I'm just now so so excited to do this. Um, I think we will probably interview David Sloan Wilson. I'm I'm delighted that you that you told me that, and um, I know you're in touch with Trent, and that you're our advisor on the whole project. So um, if if I don't speak with you again. Um, I just just know how thrilled I am that you're working with us, and and how I think this pr- program will be, you know, very eye opening for people. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much. That's very kind. You know, I wanted to start with a story which I should perhaps finish if oh, okay. there's a minute. Sure, sure. And that's a story that is a wonderful story by Jean Houston, 
the president, former president of the American Association for Humanistic Psychology. She wrote a piece in her book, A A Mythic Life, published in 1996, about meeting Taya. And she met him as old Mr. Taya in Central Park when she was a little girl of 13. And he, this was in the last year of Teya's life. And I can't read you out the story, but I have a very short version of it. But okay. what, is, what is so wonderful is that he engaged with this little girl whilst walking through Central Park. And they walked regularly because she walked her dog once or twice a week. And she would meet him on his way to the uh, Museum of Natural History where he worked. And what she brings about, in, brings across in this story is how this man had no self-consciousness at all. She didn't know who he was, but he would say, Jean, feel yourself to be the caterpillar. Look at the metamorphosis of all this. (laughs) Look at yourself. Feel the metamorphosis. And what will you become when you're a butterfly? Or he would say, look at the clouds, God's calligraphy in the sky. Then he would say, Jean, sniff the wind. Same wind sniffed by Jesus Christ. Same wind sniffed by Jean d'Arc, by Caesar, feel the tides of history flowing through you. And then I would feel myself related to all time and history. You know, and she says he had no self-consciousness. He was larger than life. And she left all her littleness behind because she taught him that everything was related and that somehow... We are look, he looked at you as if you were God in hiding and you had to mm. rise to that occasion and become that. Right. And I grew more and more that year than I ever did in any other time in my life. And she discovered many years later when she found in the bookshop uh, the phenomenon of men, as it was originally called in its first translation, with his photograph on the cover that this was the man, Mr. Uh. Tyre, she had met in Central Park when she was young. You know, <laughs> it's an amazing story. And uh. and it's very moving how she describes how he really transmitted to her this love for everything around her and mm. being whole and being connected with everything. Oh, I love that story. Will you make sure that we know how, where to find that, too? We yes, might, I can give you the can, reference. I can okay, give you the because reference. that's something we could put on the website. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, um, and we'll, we'll continue this conversation. Thank you very much indeed for your interview and for all your very interesting questions. Oh, I yes. hope you enjoy reading to Yamo. <laughs> I do. I've enjoyed reading him and you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye.